0: You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned into our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify our work and the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council. So you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. I'm Josh Gibson, director of communications for the council. You may also know me as the council's voice on social media at Council of D.C. Uh, And I wanted to welcome back one of our newest guests, uh, Councilmember Brooke Pinto. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Josh. And the, the best lead in sound in the business.
0: Oh, it's totally thanks to the Office of Cable uh, Television, Film, uh, Media, and Entertainment, because they, uh, they're the ones who did it, and uh, it's awesome. I agree. Um, and I'm so glad to have you back. You, you passed the initial interview phase uh, the last time we talked late last year, the getting to know you sort of biographical talk. And now uh, the good news is we can go whole hog into policy and, uh, and talk about legislation. Um, and, uh, there's, I believe a couple pieces of legislation that we're going to be talking about today, uh, that you've been working hard on. One is the period products act and one is the recovery act. Um, so why don't we get started with the period products act? And if you could tell us a little bit about, uh, the origin story of that legislation and, uh, what it accomplishes.
1: Sure. Um, Well, I think that it's really remarkable to me that in 2022, we still have such a stigma around people who menstruate. That's our young girls and women, our transgender boys and men, non-binary folks. Um, And there's still such an aversion that we find to just speaking about this very natural um, health uh, occurrence that happens to over half the population every month. And years ago, when I was working at the D.C. Attorney General's office for Carl Racine, I was helping to manage our uh, summer interns. And one of the activities that I ran the interns through, or our high school interns, was I had uh, all the students break up into groups. And each group had to come up with a new law, identify a problem that they're finding in the district, either in their community, their school, something else that they've observed. Um, And then through the course of the summer, we walked through each stage in the legislative process how you would engage with stakeholders, how you would ultimately draft the law, how you would seek to get it funded and implemented, um, and all of the various parties you would need to work with. And one of the groups of these extremely impressive, bright DC High School students, uh, their project and their idea was that period products need to be free in our schools. They said that they have many friends and including themselves who have at times had to stay home from school because they couldn't afford period products. Um, They didn't have access to them. There are some schools that have some products available in the nurse's office, but students had to raise their hand and essentially tell their entire class what they were going to do to go receive them. Um, And I just thought it was such a powerful idea and such a problem that still continues to persist. There are hundreds of millions of women across the world who stay home from school and don't have access to period products. And here in the District of Columbia, uh, we are not—we are no different. We have about 10% of our residents who are food insecure. Um, and studies suggest that that's about the same number as residents who aren't able to access period products. And so that began this process um, of providing period products for free in all of our schools, in our public schools, private schools, charter schools, post-secondary schools, and our universities here in the district. And when we had a hearing on the bill, we heard from additional students who said, you know, we never even learned about our periods. There were young high school boys who said, the only reason I even know what a period is is because my friend or my girlfriend told me about it when I was 16 or 17 years old. It's not part of our health curriculum. And so another important piece of the first iteration of the bill was to include a robust improvement of our health education standards, starting in grade four for all students, regardless of sex or gender, um, to make sure that all of our kids are learning about periods um, as they go forward. And so we passed... We got funded the bill in last year's budget, and we passed it this January, 2022, the period products uh, for students access bill, and that um, was unanimously passed, which we're thrilled about. And the council office of racial equity, in their uh, assessment of the bill, identified that you know we have other uh, populations who also have a very hard time accessing these period products, not just our students, um, but people in shelter, people who are visiting government buildings, uh, and this continues to be a real problem. And so we introduced a few weeks ago, uh, joined by all of um, our female council members, um, a bill to expand period products for free in all district government buildings, in all congregate settings, in buildings that the district has contracts with, including our shelters. And we're really hopeful that this bill will get a hearing soon and we can get it passed because ultimately, I think we should really think about period products just like toilet paper, a basic health necessity that all of us expect to have a right to when we go into a public restroom, and this should be treated no different.
0: Yeah, I think um, one of the things this shows us is how the legislative process works, that you start with an idea that you could put on the back of a business card, you know, free period products in schools. But then as you dig into it a bit, you're like, well, we have public and charter schools. And well, we have elementary, middle and high schools. Uh, We have uh, um, uh, single sex restrooms. We have uh, co-ed restrooms. And once you dig into it, it becomes, and and also with the changing uh, views on, on um, gender and sexuality, that is an additional complication. And what started as this little really good core idea becomes incredibly complex as you flesh it out. So uh, can, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you, you already addressed a couple of them, but the things that uh, things that you came across that really made you rethink the whole thing and made you add a section onto the the law as
1: it was being developed. Absolutely. It's such a good point. um, And makes it so important that we have robust public input through all of our legislation um, because ideas come up and concerns are raised that we can't always anticipate at the outset. Um, There were many pieces of the periods act that encountered issues like this. For example, we spoke with uh, transgender youth who said, well, we all would need access to these products as well. And so we ensured that in the period products bill for schools, that it's not just provided in uh, girls and women's bathrooms, but also in gender neutral bathrooms and in schools that do not have a gender neutral bathroom, it must be provided in at least one men's bathroom. Now, when we started doing the version for all public buildings, came to our attention that if you're only providing it in one male bathroom, one men's bathroom, how is someone to know where those products are? What if somebody enters uh, a library and there are five men's bathrooms and they they don't see any products in one? They're not going to think to look in the other four. And so we included another requirement. Um, that says if it's only in one men's bathroom, in the event that there are no gender neutral bathrooms, there also has to be a sign in all other men's bathrooms saying where these products can be found. Um, another issue that was raised is different people have different preferences about using tampons or pads. And so for our public buildings, we made sure that both are available and not to make an assumption that, um, one product is preferred because different people have different preferences.
0: And, and not to go too far down this road, but but public restrooms can be uh, maybe infamous for the quality of, using your toilet paper analogy as an example, the quality of the toilet paper not being great. And frequently, there are not being toilet paper, particularly in schools. You know, we hear a lot of complaints about school restrooms not being in the best of shape. So how are we going to make sure that the uh, quality of products provided is where
1: it needs to be and that there's uh, enough. And that there's, I'm sorry, I missed the last couple of words.
0: Oh, just that the, that there's an unending supply. So that the quality will be okay and that they right. won't be running out. Mm-hmm.
1: So it is something that we included in the bill, a requirement to make sure that there is um, ample supply for everybody who will be in the building and, and using the restrooms. And that's that will be a responsibility to replenish these products, just like it is for toilet paper. Um, in terms of the procurement That is something that will go through the procurement office to determine which products DGS and others are contracting with. Um, We didn't want to be too heavy handed in selecting certain products. I will say it's really exciting to see the development in the sanitation and health of some of these products that are making their way to being more um, natural and not sharing toxins in our bodies. And so I I leave that to the procurement office um, to ensure that we go through a fair process and that we don't select one brand over the other through our legislation, uh, because I don't think that would be fair. But we will certainly be following along to make sure that quality is um, at the forefront of everyone's mind.
0: Now, uh, in doing the the legislative research on this, it seems like the uh, school's version of the bill was passed on an emergency basis. Um, that the uh, executive found the money to implement it immediately. Oh, no, I'm sorry, you pre-funded it. You pre-funded it in last year's budget. Um, but so the funding is there. It's in place on an emergency basis. The uh, permanent law date, I think, is March 19th. It's coming uh, quite soon. Um, what have we seen so far? Are products out in some restrooms, all restrooms,
1: So yes, we did it simultaneously, the permanent bill and the emergency bill, hoping that it would be implemented right away. Um, We had to wait a little bit for the mayor to sign it, and then it's under congressional review right now. Um, And so we are hoping that these products will be in place in our schools um, this spring. Uh, But at the very latest, every school will have these products available for next school year.
0: Uh, And then you said the uh, broader all-public buildings uh, version of the bill is awaiting a hearing. Um, But I would imagine, given the strong support for the schools version, that uh, hopefully this wouldn't have any trouble getting through.
1: I hope so. Um, It's one of the items that I asked the mayor to fund in her proposed budget that she'll be sending to the council two weeks from today. Uh, So I hope that we see it in the mayor's budget. And if not, I'll be working with my colleagues to try to do the same thing as we did last year, try to get it funded. Um, And then as soon as we have a hearing, it can get it passed. We can get it implemented as soon as possible because people can't wait and and they need these products right away.
0: And what uh, committee would be holding the hearing on this?
1: So this would um, likely be either councilor Robert White's committee um, because there's a, a number of DGS components. The Department of General Services will be involved in the procurement of these products, um, but it also could be sequentially referred to Councilor Tran-White's committee because of the um, libraries and recreation facilities component. So it could be a dual referral, but we're, we're waiting to see.
0: And just out of curiosity, what, what was the roughly don't need the exact number. What was the budget amount that was included pre-included for implementation this year? What what's the sort of order of magnitude of cost?
1: So for the schools, it's expected to cost $1.4 million annually. Um, And we are waiting a fiscal estimate for the all government buildings version. Um, We're trying to get that expedited so we can get it included in the budget, but that's something we're waiting on the CFO's office on now.
0: Uh, and, and is this, you know, the, to the point of as you, the more you look into something, kind of the, the more intricacies there are. I know when we started providing uh, meals in schools, um, then it was the question was what happens during vacations and uh, are there meals to take home? Um, is this intended as a, a, a single use while you're in the facility kind of thing? Or is this supposed to be a kind of thing where people can... Uh, take care of their needs uh, 24-7, 365, based on what's being provided in the public buildings?
1: This is aimed to be if you are using the facility in the public buildings. And again, that's why I go back to the toilet paper analogy. Of course, there could be a situation where somebody takes extra toilet paper and brings it home with them if they're in a large need. I anticipate that that's a possibility here, but the purpose is to offer these products when somebody is in need while they're in, in the facility.
0: Okay, and so there isn't the question of during vacations or over the summer, how people would access the product. The thought is that they would hopefully have access uh, at home.
1: Right, I mean, for, for public buildings, it will go year-round, yeah, including summer year-round. vacations. Um, but yes, for, for schools, for now, it will be uh, during the school year.
0: Um, okay. Um, well, The second bill you wanted to talk about, um, and I want to make sure I get this right, because um, I thought this was quite uh, crafty, um, is the Recovery Act, which is the Rediscover Equitable Central Occupancy, Vitality, and Encourage Resilient Yield uh, Rediscovery Act. Um, con- kudos on uh, coming up with the acronym, first of well, all.
1: Well, I've got to give credit where credit is due. My chief of staff, Genevieve Hulick, is a master at so many things, but naming bills is really turned out to be a, a, a real skill of hers as well. So that that was her doing.
0: Yeah. That that's like higher PhD level.
1: Oh uh, yeah. Big time.
0: Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, sure. Uh, we'll talk, talk about what that, uh, the intent of that bill is.
1: Sure. So we have all seen, um, Devastating impacts on our city, really across every industry, across every piece of way of life that we know through the pandemic. And the downtown core and the central business district uh, has really suffered as a result of the pandemic, understandably so. It is extremely reliant on office workers. The Golden Triangle uh, neighborhood only has 37 residents. So all of the small businesses and restaurants. Um, and public transportation are really almost entirely reliant on office workers who um, come in and patronize all of those establishments. And so we found during the pandemic that the Central Business District was really not resilient uh, to overcome something like a pandemic that we saw in some of our other neighborhoods that are um, share more of a diversity of Needs have grocery stores, transportation, residents, and small businesses and office. Um, those neighborhoods were much more resilient and people could adapt and, and still stay afloat. Um, but in downtown, it's really suffered. We have 17 million square feet of vacant office space downtown. Um, that's harmful for our tax base, for our real estate taxes. That's harmful for our small businesses who rely on that foot traffic. It's harmful for Metro. Um, it's harmful for public safety. It's really a big challenge. And so as we started thinking about and meeting with dozens of stakeholders who are residents, small businesses, sports arenas, um, developers, uh, families about what the need are and needs are and how we can reimagine how we use some of the space downtown. We thought that we needed to build a resilient downtown. Um, one that has more green space for families, one that has more retail and restaurants and hotels, one that has more residential housing and more affordable housing so people can live downtown and work where they live. Um, And so we looked at a series of tax incentives um, and grant programs and came up with what we believe to be uh, the most pressing kind of concerns. And so the Recovery Act, um, in an effort to reimagine this space, does three primary things. It, one offers um, tax abatements or incentives for various uses. So if a building comes and agrees to convert vacant office space into residential and includes affordable units, we'll give them a tax abatement. If a, a building comes and wants to make a hotel, Uh, If they include project labor agreements and work collaboratively with the unions, give them a tax abatement. Um, And same thing for retail and restaurant, working with DemPed and prioritizing minority and women-owned businesses, they'll get a tax abatement. And so we're trying to incentivize activity downtown, um, but in a manner that's aligned with our values, that's inclusive and equitable as we all try to recover. There are provisions in this bill that provides two year grants um, for businesses looking to relocate in the central business district to rent physical space because we need people in person in this space. Um, As much as, you know, I I value online businesses in many regards, we we need people renting space in person um, downtown. And we also have included tax relief for innovative businesses, business ideas, um, that have met other economic inclusion requirements, working with the deputy, uh, deputy mayor for business and planning and economic development. So there are a lot of pieces of this bill. We've worked with um dozens of folks were really excited about it. This is another bill that I hope we can get funded in the budget um, because it's really time to get started on some of these projects, these projects and developments take time. They're not going to happen overnight. And so the longer we wait, the further away we are from recovery. And so I'm hopeful um, that we can collaborate and work well with my colleagues on some of these really important pieces in recognition that it's it's for downtown and for the central business district, but it is in furtherance of our entire city's recovery because our entire city really needs a robust downtown uh, to be functioning properly.
0: Um, Now, I mean, you you partly answered this in in what you already said, but what would you say to, uh, you know, this is going through business improvement districts, what would you say to the other business improvement districts, whether it be Georgetown in your ward, or, uh, I don't know, a NOMA or a Capitol Riverfront that is uh, adjacent to the downtown that, you know, some would argue is a new downtown. um, Why uh, would you say these shouldn't be citywide incentives?
1: So I think that there are a lot of um, recovery efforts and tools that we need to be applying to other neighborhoods. So you mentioned Georgetown, NOMA, um, the Anacostia bid. There are provisions that I've asked for in the budget as well to the mayor to provide additional seed money to all of our bids across the city um, of $500,000 each so that we can be flexible with what small businesses need. Some small businesses need help with their first month rent. They may have a great idea for a business, but they haven't made money yet to pay their first month rent. This this money could be used for that. Some businesses need help with utilities or purchasing a refrigerator or um, tools. I met with a chocolatier, um, a couple who's a chocolate shop owner and they needed assistance with a new machine that could 10 X the speed at which they made chocolate, Um, you know, some businesses need help with window dressings and making this, the storefront look inviting. And so I think that that is a really important, uh, tool to give to our business improvement districts so that they can work flexibly with all of our businesses. So items like that, I think are really important. Um, the recovery act really takes into account that the central business district is unlike any of the other neighborhoods in that, uh, the majority of vacant office space that we see citywide is all located in the central business district. Um, as I mentioned, the 17 million square feet, and so it's a a problem that is unlike the other neighborhoods, and therefore needs a solution that is unlike the other neighborhoods.
0: Uh, what level? And I, I realize that we need to have the, the bill passed and funded, and you know, to get true sense, but. What level of interest are you seeing from commercial business owners in things like residential conversion? Because uh, this has been discussed before, other legislation's been put forward and it's seen as notoriously uh, complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, So are are you seeing a heightened level of interest now that maybe people's feet are being held uh, to the fire just by the sheer quantity of uh, vacant office uh, and retail?
1: I think there's definitely more interest now than there has been in the last five or 10 years given the state of the world and the decisions that many um, commercial renters have been making about returning to in-person and having more remote work. And so I think property owners are sensing that um, and hopefully are uh, seeing where the future could bring us downtown and seeing how successful that could be for their tenants, um, to have a more resilient community and have more people who live downtown, um, more green space, more retail hotels, in addition to the office space that that we need there. Um, So I am seeing an interest. I will say it is uh, difficult for some developers to make the math work For the affordable housing inclusion which is a really important component to us because we have very little affordable housing in ward two um we just uh, went to the ribbon cutting this weekend of parcel 42 which is going to be 108 new affordable units in shaw Um, we're really excited about that project and other similar projects around ward two but we need affordable housing in ward two and we need affordable housing downtown and so to us that's a really important part of the incentive to to make the conversion. Um, But that's been the biggest pushback is for some property owners, they say, here's the math, we can make more money if we don't convert it for this purpose or if we don't take the abatement, but therefore don't have to have any affordable units. And so it's a balancing act to try to get folks to agree to the conversion, agree to the affordable housing um, and incentivizing them enough to do that through the abatement. And that's one of the debates that I had with some of my colleagues last summer. I tried to include a piece of this, one abatement uh, through the budget process. And it ultimately got um, removed from the budget because I couldn't get enough of my colleagues to agree with me. And I understand people had pushback saying, we shouldn't just have 20% affordable. We need to have 40 or 50 or 80%. And I, I think that's a great idea in theory, but we just couldn't make the math work for people to opt in to that abatement um, using those numbers. And so ultimately it got pulled and that was a, a real missed opportunity in my view.
0: And it, it is such complex uh, uh, business math and economics that you're dealing with. How is are drafting the legislation? Do you make those decisions? You know, how incentivey, do you set the incentive uh, knob, you know, dial? Um, and then, like you said, the affordable housing in terms of, you know, who is it affordable to and what percentage of the units are going to be made affordable at all? That just sounds like beyond PhD level economics. How do you figure out those numbers in the process of dra- drafting uh, a bill?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I love the word incentivee. I think I'm going to be adopting that um, <laughs> as part of our new lexicon. Um, but it is complicated, and we rely on a lot of different partners. You know, my background is in hospitality and real estate. I focused on economics and accounting in college as part of my business and hospitality degree um, before this. Before serving on the council, I was at the attorney general's office and I was working in the tax section, doing tax litigation, working uh, primarily on real estate property tax cases. Um, our section had a thousand cases a year. And so we worked with thousands of uh, property owners across the city and looked at their numbers and their uh, assessments and how they're valuing their, their buildings and how the city's valuing their buildings. And so I think those experiences um, and, you know, working with other small businesses, working as a manager of a frozen yogurt shop, uh, working in many hotels and restaurants, I um, have been able to bring a lot of those experiences to bear, just thinking through practically how this is going to affect an operator or owner's decision structure. Um, and then, of course, working at the attorney general's office um, as an assistant attorney general for legislative affairs and policy that drafting experience was really helpful in thinking through, okay, how do we make an idea, not just an idea, but put it on paper um, and implementable and how is that going to affect, affect the tax department? How is that going to affect DemPed? How is that going to affect taxpayers? Um, How is that going to affect, you know, the larger neighborhood? And so that's been very helpful, but I have an amazing team um, and we worked in partnership with a lot of, property owners, with uh, renters of retail space, with our main streets, with our uh, downtown bid, our Golden Triangle bid. Um, and so there were a lot of voices and really smart collaborators uh, through this process to try to get these numbers right.
0: And this, in contrast with the period products bill, which is a very discreet number to achieve a very sweeping purpose. I could see this being astronomically expensive you know speaking again of the incentive if it really catches on and there were huge interest then um this could have a large price tag i know you said you uh, had to put in a request that this be put in the mayor's budget uh proposal but what is this sort of uh pilot level or is this really something that would be available across the two bids um to everybody and would it be funded if if Uh, it catches on. Mm -hmm.
1: So uh, some buildings are better situated to do this than others. Um, Through a lot of different metrics, some buildings, platelets are structured in a way that they could handle a conversion uh, from office space to housing without demolishing the entire building. Some, it would be such a large project that it would be, um, it would never really be worth it for them to receive the abatement. And so that's a piece of this. So this is not a solution that's going to work for every building. So I'll just say that that limits the um, estimated cost. But we estimate the full funding of the Recovery Act to be about $15 million, which we think is a really important investment in our future. And as I said, the reimagining of how we use a lot of our space downtown.
0: And do you have a sense of how many buildings potentially could be benefited with <laughs> In? That sounds like a, a low price tag, so I'm excited if it could benefit a lot of uh, buildings.
1: Um, you know, we're going to have to see uh, what level of abatement we can get past, how many how many years that would be for uh, where we land on the percentage of affordable housing. You know, right now, the version that I introduced has a 20% affordable housing requirement at 80% area median income. Um to A, make sure we get that math right, as we talked about, so that people actually opt into this and make sure we get some affordable housing, but B, because we need more workforce housing downtown and we need to make sure that we have housing for our teachers and firefighters and police officers um, so they can live close by to where they work. Um, but we really won't know how many buildings opt into it until we secure the final numbers and, and get the bill passed. So I'm I'm hopeful that uh, in addition to the abatements the that we talked about, plus the grant programs to encourage innovators to rent space downtown um, and and do so in an equitable manner, prioritizing our minority and women-owned businesses, that that will be around $15 million.
0: Gotcha. Um, Well, we're almost out of time. We have two more things I want to do. Um, One is a question I've been wanting to ask you since apparently November 17th, 2020. Um, I don't remember what the event was. Um, but it was a council, uh, event and you said, since I was 12 years old, I've had a little plaque in my room that says, quote, taxes are the lifeblood of government. And I believe this to my core. Please tell me more about this sign. <laughs> How did this sign end up in your room? Do you still have the sign? Could I see a photo? I need to know more about this sign.
1: Yes. Um, the sign. So I do still have the sign um, in my childhood bedroom. Um, you know, my family has always been uh, strong Democrats, and ever since I was really young, um, I remember my parents explaining to me that taxes are extremely important. Um, they help our our town, and our state, and our country, and our world really pay for the functioning of government pay for our roads and our firefighters and our police and our schools. And, um, it's a really important, it's a really important part of government and kind of what we're all doing here. And I'll never forget my first paycheck that I received and before I opened it it came in the mail and I was standing with my dad and he said, open this paycheck. You're going to see a number at the top and then you're going to see a number at the bottom. I don't ever want you to look at the number at the top and say, that's what I should have gotten, but the government took some out and I got bottom. You get what you got at the bottom. And that is your absolute privilege to be an American that you get to contribute taxes to our amazing country. And I just remember that so deeply. Um, and so I, I found this sign, I think it was in Maine, like at a side shop. Um, and I just loved the sign and thought it was really impactful. And so I I had it, um, ever since. I think I think it must still be in my in my bedroom somewhere. Uh, when I visit my parents over the holidays, I'll try to find it. Um, but it always just stuck with me. And I thought about that all the time when I was litigating tax cases, when people were complaining about taxes, is we need to make sure that our tax system is um, done in a fair way, that we are not um, over-adjusting behavior. But Taxes are the lifeblood of government and we all have a responsibility to contribute to that government and a privilege to do so.
0: I've been dying to ask you that question
1: <laughs> for a very long time. <laughs> I thought that
0: was very cool and very quirky and very interesting. So appreciate you taking the time to answer. Um, so anyway, the last, last little bit of the interview, uh, last time we, we ranked a dessert preferences because mm-hmm. that's what I've done with all the council members. Um, uh, the the fun round this time around is I'm going to name a task and I want you to say which of your council, which of your council colleagues you think would be best suited to this task and why. Okay. Quick stream of consciousness answer, quick explanation. Um, the first one is assembling IKEA furniture.
1: Uh, Brandon Doe. She's a mom because she got young kids. She just moved. She's extremely handsy and on top of it.
0: Okay, excellent. Uh how about uh, filing your taxes? Me. <laughs> okay, good answer. I thought you might say that. Uh driving cross country.
1: Ooh. Uh Robert White. Feel like he'd got have great music, he'd be in a good mood.
0: Critical. Both it's critical. Both critical on a drive like that. Um, how about cooking up a feast? Ooh. Who would you like to cook up a feast with or have them cook one up for you?
1: uh phil mendelson it's great cook we could, we could get a lot of a lot of our budget priorities accomplished during that session
0: yeah kill two birds <laughs> with one stone
1: yeah
0: um how about bringing home to meet your family
1: oh uh Alyssa silverman she's really fun she's got a lot of great stories i think my family would love to meet her
0: okay um And the, the final one and my favorite, uh, fighting off barbarians. (laughs)
1: Um, I don't know if this would be effective, but I want to say Christina Henderson, because I think she would really try to reason with the barbarians and just go through what they were doing here and why it was such a bad idea. And I don't know, it'd be effective, but it would be very fun to watch.
0: Yes. Yes. (laughs) I would agree with that. Um, Okay, well, we are officially out of time, over time, but thank you for indulging me on the last two sub-segments, and thanks for the the detailed policy conversation on the two pieces of legislation. Um, I want to remind our uh, viewers and listeners to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search under Hearing the Council. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Council Member. Uh, and listeners, tune in again next time. We're on DC Radio at 96.3 on your FM HD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. I'm Josh Gibson. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. Thanks very much, Councilmember Pinto. See you next time.
1: Thanks, Josh. Have a great one.
0: Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.